2: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour after three straight down months for stocks is some much-needed relief finally in sight. The Investment Committee debating the road ahead as several members make new portfolio moves you got to hear about. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal. Got a lot of stuff going on today. Check the markets. We've been mixed for much of the session. Dow's positive, S&P flat, Nasdaq a touch negative. As you see, 486, the yield on the 10-year note. So Josh, we're clocking in three straight months of declines. Been a bit of a rough stretch. I know that most want to know if there's still a chance for a year-end rally. November is the best month of the year traditionally, December 2nd. So seasonality is on our side. Yeah. And I see you have a new buy, and it's AMD. And yeah. that company reports today in OT. But why is AMD part of the Josh Brown portfolio now? So
3: uh, AMD is a stock that's been on my radar for a long time. I had been in and out of it before long time ago. Um, AMD, I think, is at a really interesting moment in the company's history. Tonight, they'll report earnings. The earnings, of course, are always important. Uh, but what's more important than the numbers themselves is what Lisa Sue has to say about the launch of Uh, the new AI chip. So, look, this is a market that Nvidia basically owns and the H100 chip is what turned Nvidia into a trillion dollar company and they have a huge lead over everyone and no one should think that I'm saying otherwise. But what I would say is if you look at the history of technology it is highly unlikely that any one company maintains ninety to hundred percent market share forever. AMD is the chip maker that has the best shot to capture 25, maybe 30% of this market over the next five years. And when I say this market, understand something. The market for AI chips could be literally $150 billion if you listen to what Intel says, what Qualcomm says, not just AMD's opinion. So I think that they have a shot at this. Tonight's a very big moment. They're gonna talk about the launch, which happens this quarter. There are two types of chips for AI. This is very important, and I'll finish with this. Two types of chips are AI. Training, NVIDIA has 90% of the market for training. That's how they teach these systems how to operate. The other market, arguably the more important market longer term is inference. AI's architect, uh, AMD's architecture is specifically geared toward capturing meaningful share in inference. Inference is like when you go on a large language model you, you post a, a query, that's how it responds on an ongoing basis. So I think AMD is, is walking through the door of becoming a serious AI player. The stock is down from 158 here in the mid-90s. I have a small position. We'll see what happens if I'm able to add to it. But I wanted to make sure I was in before they came out and said anything that could
2: meaningfully move the stock. Steph, I mean, it's been dicey lately a, a bit for the SMH and, and for the chips. Mm-hmm. You know, NVIDIA is barely above 400 bucks. It's the most loved, you could argue, of, of all of the names, even though I know it's not the most loved for you. Mm-hmm. That's where Broadcom and comes in some of the others, obviously. But Jonathan Krinsky today says in a note, come at the king, you best not miss. OK, he's talking about NVIDIA breaking support and suggests at least 10 percent more downside is ahead. Now, I know because it's not yours, you may not have a specific opinion on NVIDIA, but the space itself can't afford, I'm saying, to have an AMD miss today and an NVIDIA break down another 10 percent.
4: Well, because a lot
2: of other names are going to go down with it if it does.
4: Of course. And that's where your opportunity is going to be. One thing that we've heard from a lot of technology companies is that the PC market is actually bottoming. We heard that from IBM last week. And I do think that we're also hearing wafer fab equipment. The end market is bottoming. We heard from Lamb Research. They actually increased their guidance twice so far. Stock is still down a lot from a year ago. So I do think you're going to be able to pick your spots. I think Broadcom is getting wrapped up in the whole VMware thing. Let that, let that pass. Uh, if it doesn't go through, they're going to buy back a ton of stock. If it does go through, 55 percent of their revenues is, is going to be recurring. So I think there are opportunities. But you asked at the top of the show if you think that, if we think that there's a rally into the end of the year. I absolutely do. I actually think the sentiment is really washed out right here. And Whether you're looking at the S&P oscillator, whether you're looking at the fear and greed index, you look at Josh's RSI stuff, it's all really pointing to very negative uh, sentiment. And that's number one. Number two, I think the Fed is done, right? Even if they go one or two more times, they're done. They're basically done. You're in the ninth inning and we're not going into extra innings because I know you were going to ask me that. <laughs> peak rates, I do think that we are seeing peak rates. Look at Look at the bond market, right? Look look at GDP and PCE um, and ECI today. And we're, it's kind of like in a trading range right now. It's not exploding higher. So I think you're starting to see a peak in rates as well. You add it all up, earnings are coming in better than expected. Yeah, two and a half, three percent isn't something to get so excited about, but it's certainly better than negative. And that's what people were expecting heading into the, these, the quarter.
2: So, Jimmy, I mean, it, it, it's going to depend a lot on rates in terms of late-year rally you got the Fed meeting beginning today. Nothing really expected. There's your market picture. Ten years at 487, as we said. Consumer confidence remains strong. 1026 versus 100, the estimate. Middle East oil. You know, yes, it's a it's a wild card. As World Bank suggests, you get a, you know, a, a, a deeper escalation of the war over there. You could get oil to 157. Steph's got some moves we'll talk about in a minute, but size it all up.
1: Yeah, and let's just start where you ended on oil. It could go to 150. And it's the same discussion that we were having a year and a half ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. And a lot of really smart oil analysts were saying, we're going to 200. Not we may go to 200. We're going to 200. That turned out not to be the case. So um, if, if it worsens, that's bad for stocks, it being the Middle East. Let's for a second here assume that it stabilizes at some point soon. I think the bigger point here, and Steph was really making this, is that this U.S. economy is a lot stronger than has been or is being given credit to it. And the upshot of that is the cyclical sectors of the market have just stunk for a long period of time. Scott, a lot of times in the last few weeks, you've come to me and you said, how much more patient can you be, Jimmy, on on specific names? And I think that is exactly the right word to use. For everybody listening, it is a question of patience. All right, It's, in my opinion, the biggest virtue in the stock market. And I think you're soon going to be paid off because of what Steph just said and what I've been saying all along, which is that these cyclical companies continue to out- out-earn what their share prices are reflecting, and it's showing up in their balance sheets. Now, just to sum this up, what I'm looking for this week is the labor market report. Because to your point, Scott, about interest rates, yes. Yes. Interest rates are what matters right now. And the flow of fund into bonds. So you're looking for that Friday report to show ameliorating average hourly earnings wage growth and uptick in labor force participation rate. If you get that, it's going to back the Fed off even more. That's what I'm looking for.
2: Steph, in terms of oil, the two moves you have, I want to get through some of these before we bring in our headline guest today. You trimmed Chevron, you added to SLB. Can you tell me why you did those two things? And Chevron has not traded well recently, as you know.
4: No, it hasn't. And it was a terrible quarter. And you know I'm always looking for good quarters where stocks sell off. This was a terrible quarter and the stock sold off. Appropriately so. And that is because they missed earnings and they missed free cash flow. And they actually are buying back less stock than they actually guided to, and they guided for less buybacks as well. The whole reason I owned this is because they were buying back stock, and they were actually increasing the dividend while they were increasing CapEx. And now all of a sudden you do three deals and you're you're short on cash flow. So to me, I much prefer Schlumberger, which beat, which guided to about mid-20s in margins, EBIT margins, and EBITDA growth in general. And they have pricing power and technology and I think that there's much more upside. And if in fact oil prices do go higher, this is much more levered to the underlying commodity. So you get more juice if 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 it goes higher. If it goes lower, it's going to also have a lot of juice. But I think oil prices stay about this level, and they're printing money.
2: Energy worst sector month to date in what's been a a, a, yeah. a bad month. I mean, energy's down what six and a half percent almost ugly on the month. So if you get a, you know. No one wants a spike to the degree of 150 bucks. That's going to have broad implications on a lot of stuff. It means that the Middle East has gone real bad and that you get a spike. And that has implications uh, in and of itself. Let's bring in our headliner now. Just ranked number one in both portfolio strategy and quantitative research this year by institutional investor. Inducted into their All-America Hall of Fame list. He is Dubrovko Lakos. He's the chief global equity strategist at J.P. Morgan. Congratulations.
5: Thank you. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me.
2: Um, all right. So, by virtue of these accolades, your your point of view matters to a lot of people. Um, you heard Jim suggest that the economy is doing much better than people think it is. You're one of the doubters, some respects, about where the economy is going. So, let's match this up.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am one of the doubters. I've 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 been a doubter even the last time I was here on the set when the market was higher. So. Um, for us, macro is really like the big headwind that, that markets are facing. Uh, higher for longer, cost of capital being elevated is something that we've been talking about since February. Um, liquidity is getting uh, sucked out of the system as well, which I think is generally a pretty big and important headwind. Obviously, there's geopolitics that uh, you know we can talk about, but that's also an additional tail risk that's very hard to sort of handicap. Fundamentals, to your point, I agree. I think I see them slowing, they're just not collapsing. And the word that I would use on the fundamental side is we're seeing increasing bifurcation on the fundamental side. It sounds like the
2: crux of your argument is built around the idea that the lag effects Mm -hmm. are going to be more dramatically felt than people realize today.
5: Fair? Yes, very fair. I think there is just a lagged effect. And this time around, in this cycle, the lag simply may be longer than what we're accustomed to sort of seeing in the prior cycles because of the unprecedented you know, injection that, that we've got during COVID and because of a relatively healthy starting point for things like balance sheets. Jimmy,
2: I want you to respond. And then I want Steph to also because you guys have a, a, a more sanguine view on, on where we are relative yeah. to Dubrovko and some of his colleagues over at JPM.
1: Okay, Dubrovko, always good to see you. Thank you. Um, look, for the last year and a half, I think you'll agree the economy's done a lot better than expected. And uh, let's just chalk that up to the lagged effects being a lot more lagged than any of us expected. All right. L- let's just say I give you that and we we can disagree about the path going forward. But these companies that during this extremely long lag time have out outearned, out and cleaned up their balance sheet. Doesn't that actually perversely extend the lag further from the point of view of they have less debt to refinance, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're worried about, at least at the corporate side, is they're going to have to refinance at these much higher rates, except now there's a lot less debt because they've paid down a lot with all the extra cash flow. Uh, is that right?
5: Yeah, I think that's broadly right. But I think that's just one part of the picture. Um, I think for the S&P 500, for the large camp complex, uh, balance sheets are in a pretty good spot. Uh, Rates going higher is a headwind, but just a gradual headwind. The problem is, I think, as you move down the cap spectrum, you look at mid-caps, small-caps, the entire private sector, uh, there's a a, a more significant portion of that that's that's, that's variable, that's more sensitive, if you will. Balance sheet is more sensitive to cost of capital. And everything that's happened so far during this call that increasing headwind from cost of capital has happened under a relatively healthy top-line demand type scenario where pricing power has been strong and where a lot of corporates have been basically growing not organically but just through price.
1: Dupravko, and, forgive me, why aren't companies laying off people?
5: I think I think that's the lagged effect. I think that's a risk that we're facing in 2024. I'll give you one statistic. S&P 500, if I'm not mistaken, which is right, the fortress balance sheet employs only, I believe, 12, 13 million people. If you look at uh, Mid-cap, small-cap, private sector, you're looking closer to 60, 70 million. And that's the area that's more vulnerable to the macro head. Small-caps are in a bear market already, though.
3: Like, like, what if a lot of what you're saying is true and priced in? No, Where, so, the Russell is not the s and
5: I think things are definitely getting priced in, but to me, that's a worrying sign. To me, that's okay. a sign not not that enough, the yet. market is telling you, Things are slowing down. We're hanging on to the magnificent seven, magnificent 11. All the returns this year are coming from basically seven stocks. So that's telling us. So I think, yeah, we better hope that the Nvidia's of the world keep just really rolling in very, very strong numbers. The second that that goes, What do you hang on to?
4: Has the consumer and the strength in the consumer surprised you? Because it's actually they've been resilient. And that's tied to the labor market, which has surprised everybody. And I was pretty bullish. So was Jimmy at the beginning of the year about the labor market being resilient. And as a result, you have higher wages. You're you're heard from McDonald's and Coke and Pepsi. They do have pricing power. So as a result, a little bit better demand from the consumer, better margins, because they've got pricing power and operating leverage.
5: So very valid point. Uh, there's Coke, there's Pepsi, there's McDonald's, but then there's also Macy's, there's also Costco, there's also Do- there's a lot of other stores that are talking about the lower end getting squeezed harder and harder. Last year we we were didn't
4: de- hear from McDonald's yesterday. Right. That's for sure.
5: For sure, yeah. Last year we were defending the consumer. This year my problem with the consumer is that again, I use the word bifurcation. I think the upper 50% or the upper quartile is in a very good shape, sitting still on pretty good liquidity. But the problem is that the lower 50% is getting squeezed. And so I'll give you a statistic, excess liquidity. So how much liquidity households have, inflation adjusted, lower 40% by income cohort, excess liquidity is below pre-COVID levels. The middle 40% is at pre-COVID levels. The upper 20% is still above. So we're basically hanging on to the upper income to keep carrying us forward. I feel like that's always the case. No, because I would say that the bottom 80% drives 60% of overall household consumption. And right now, retail, if you look at retail numbers and consumption, it's not running a trend, it's running above trend. So I think there is a very legitimate risk where basically consumption and retail sales at a minimum go down to trend with the risk of going below trend. That's what we're basically saying 12% earnings growth for next year, which is the expectation, and a multiple of 18, I just think very hard to get excited about. That's why we have such a bifurcated view, Josh, about
2: where the market is going from here. It's the the, everything looks pretty good view, these two, um, to where the puck is going, looks like the ice is gonna start to melt. A little bit. Here's what I want to ask that, you. That's the, the greatest issue that we have to get an answer yeah. to before we can have a real comprehensive view about where stocks go from here. In other, in other words, can
3: the deceleration in growth? Is there enough time for this uh, lower lower income consumer to hang on until the deceleration in growth uh, stops and we're into a new cycle? And you, so you sound like the answer is no, and I'm inclined to b- agree with you. But here's the get out of jail free card that might work out this time. If we do get down to 3% inflation and then 2.8 and then 2.5 and that tremendous pressure on the lower income consumer or the middle of the road consumer even abates slightly and what's left standing is this incredible labor market, keep adding 100, 200,000 jobs a month, fed in a position where they can take the boot off the neck even if that's not for a year from now, isn't that the get out of jail free card? The Russell 2000, 12 times earnings. Mid caps, 13 times earnings. S&P, 17.7 forward earnings, like not egregiously overpriced. That's like the, I I know it's uh, not the, maybe not the most uh, highly likely scenario, but it is a likely scenario and that might force you to change your mind. I don't know if and when.
5: Yeah, so I mean, it's certainly plausible. I mean, all of these things that we talk about that we forecast, it's, it has a big fat standard error around it. It's very hard to start say things with conviction. We're in unique times. If I had to pick a side, you know the side that I stand on, putting different sort of probabilities together. If you get some form of significant, let's say, productivity boom in this economy, and maybe AI can drive it or maybe not, uh, but If you can if you can pull that off, yes, I think the cycle can get extended.
2: That's one of the views, by the way, of like Jimmy and Ed Denny, the people who are more positive about the market do think you're you're going to get that. And it's going to offset some of the negatives that are predicted to occur. Let, Let me ask you this. Your price target at the end of this year is roughly where we are now. So you're looking for the most part, nothing to happen here. You're you're you're. Mid-picture view is more that earnings estimates are overinflated and the stocks are going to have to come down as we get into 24. But what on the idea, we're about to have a Fed decision and we're not going to get much of any decision. What if the Fed is done? And what if the next move they make is a cut? What if the economy holds
5: up strong enough that earnings don't collapse to the degree that you think they might? So I think the market and risky assets in the recent weeks, even maybe recent month or two or three, have been largely trading. Um, off of two key risk factors. What's happening with rates on the back end, and obviously the situation in in geopolitics, Middle East, oil that you discussed earlier. Fed may be done very well, but the back end of the curve, everything we're seeing the last two months, three months, keeps hiking for the Fed. And it's largely, I would say, for supply reasons, meaning the discount rate keeps getting increased for corporates, for the consumer, without necessarily a clear growth offset. So maybe Fed is done, but if the 10-year, the 30-year goes back above five to five and a quarter, six, our CEO, Jamie Nyman, happens to flirt with the idea of 7%, uh, that I think creates a very, very tricky backdrop. Because well, of course, but what's the likely, of course, but what's the likelihood of that actually happening? Well, I think a lot of it is supply. A lot of it is driven by the amount of uh, supply, debt supply that's coming online to finance the the deficit. Well, we'll learn
2: learn more on Wednesday. We'll learn more on Wednesday. There was no big shock yesterday in in the preliminary announcement, if you want to call it that.
5: Fair. Five and a half trillion dollars worth of uh, balance sheets from the big five central banks have come off in the last six quarters. Central bankers are not talking about reversing QT anytime soon. So, again, that's an additional headwind. You have China, the Japan factor, which is also a marginal headwind. So let's hope that yields sort of stabilize here. But if they don't, again, that's something we have to keep working. on. What, what do okay. you
4: think earnings are going to be for next year? You said 12 percent is too high. So where do you think they come in at?
5: We're at 230. Uh, I don't say with that with high conviction because there's so many things that can happen between now and then. I would say 230 with a downside risk. Let me ask you this. I want to go back
2: to rates for a second before we move off that. Because um, you know the scenario in which Mr. Diamond has has said is a, that's a rather hyperbolic, yeah, you know, yeah. pr- prediction. Not not even necessarily a prediction. It's just a what if. Um, what if
5: rates are done going up? Do you have to change your view if that's the case? So first of all, I think a lot of people w- were disagreeing with this view of higher rates, but it turns out he's been spot on. Um, so. If rates are done, let's say- No, he's been right, but I'm saying like you know six
2: or 7%.
5: No, no, but that's like the scenario we're saying on the upper end, sort of. But I'm just saying, if let's say rates are done and let's say pause here, um, I do think that in the very, very short term, you easily could get a tactical short squeeze, short covering. Would I chase it? I would not chase it. Would I fade it? I would fade it and perhaps re-emphasize the short side of, of, of the trade. So I think you're now, given that the market is corrected, we're back at February levels. We're sort of at our price target. This moment, I don't have very high conviction that we necessarily have to keep going lower. But as I think about 2024, I just don't like the picture.
2: Let me ask you about mega caps, then, since we really haven't focused that much on it. You've you've cited the fact that it's been a very small group of stocks, which everybody at this point knows about. Um, Is there any reason to believe that that trade is going to turn south? Now, it's had a rough three months. I'll give you that. Uh, But the minute that those stocks are deemed to be cheap enough, which started to happen later, you know, last week. They've all had good earnings.
5: uh, Why wouldn't money continue to go there? No, it's possible that money could go into that. Wasn't it probable? Not possible, but probable. I think earnings need to be very very solid. But they were, weren't they? I think we can. I mean, you can talk about, you know, Microsoft versus a Google, Apple, which is showing again. I'm saying very consensus things, softness in top line that continues to decelerate. Uh, I think numbers have to keep coming in strong because it's a very, very, very crowded trade. Everybody's hiding there, and concentration in the market is at the highest point in 50, 60 years. So yes, could things become even more concentrated? They could. But what could happen also is more money goes into an Nvidia or into the Magnificent Seven, and more money comes out of the other 490 stocks or small caps that become then cheaper and cheaper. And we just go into an even more extreme environment until things eventually roll over. What's the best place today in your mind to put money? I think think it's very simple. The whole year we have been saying cash is king. Why? Because we're saying you can basically clip roughly 5% yield at zero risk. So the sharp ratio of that proposal is pretty darn good. Equities better give you 12%, 15%, 12%, 15%, not that easy. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is bond proxies. So think about areas like. Utilities? Absolutely, yes. Utilities, defensive healthcare, maybe even some pockets of staples that have come undone. Why? Because they've gotten hit hard as the back end has moved higher. If the back end keeps moving even higher, I think you have to start pricing in a higher chance of crisis and recession, in which case you want to buy a more defensive exposure. If rates stabilize or move lower, as perhaps another scenario suggesting, bond proxies catch a bid. So I would be favoring higher quality, more recession-proof type areas. Another thing that comes to mind is dividend aristocrats, for instance, that have also been disfavored very much so over the course of this year. Mm, that was fun. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for The Hall me. of
2: Famer. Congratulations again. <laughs> Thank you. That's Dubravko Lakos, J.P. Morgan's chief global equity strategist. Joining us here at Post 9, we'll talk to you soon. We're getting some more news out of the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, a few blocks from where we are now. Kate Rooney live outside the courthouse. Kate.
6: Hey, Scott. So Sam Bankman-Fried has wrapped up his testimony. The defense has officially rested its case. The indicted crypto founder is off the stand. The jury was actually sent home for the day. So they're going to have a charging conference. They'll pick back up tomorrow at 9.30 with the jury. Slightly less hostile tone, Scott, from the founder this morning, Bankman-Fried was on the stand earlier It started off the prosecution questioning his, quote, cozy relationship with the Bahamian prime minister. They asked if he had proposed at any point paying off the Bahamas' debt, more than $11 billion worth of national debt. He responded that he didn't remember discussing that. He was asked about the prime minister visiting Miami, a heat game with his wife. He was given courtside seats. And then about a dinner he put together with Bill Clinton, Clinton, Tony Blair, and that prime minister was also asked about the $8 billion bug that was discovered. We've talked about that in this case. He said he, quote, deeply regretted that and not taking a deeper look into it. He also admitted that he didn't ever fire anyone. And he said he regretted that as well. Uh, The questioning that side, the prosecution ended about an hour ago. Then we got the direct, redirect rather, from the defense attorneys. They tried to clarify what was talked about yesterday. They revisited some of the articles that they mentioned. Bankman fried estimated he gave around 50 interviews right after the collapse of that crypto exchange he said he doesn't recall every statement that he made to journalists as for the f regulators comment that was mentioned yesterday it was an internal message with a journalist he said that he was frustrated with regulators and felt like some of the work that he had done might have actually encouraged bad regulation tried to clarify it there on alameda's 65 billion dollar line of credit bankman read said that was the maximum they could take out but he said it was never nearly that amount it was Closer to $2 billion, according to his testimony. And finally, he was questioned on private jet use. That was talked about this morning. He explained that he thought it was a valid business expense as a CEO. He talked about some travel that he did from the Bahamas to D.C. Prosecutors will begin their rebuttal. We expect that to happen next. But again, they are having this charging conference, so the jury's going to head home. Scott,
2: bring any any updates, though. Back to you. Yep, no, you will. Kate, thanks so much. Kay Rooney outside the courthouse, lower Manhattan. Up next, our chart of the day. One industrial stock under some pressure today on a weak China outlook. Committee member Kevin Simpson, he tells us last week he'd add to his position on a pullback. Well, he's getting it. So is he doing it? He'll tell us next.
1: Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me.
2: Hi, right, Welcome back. Chart of the day. It's Cat. Take a look. Falling almost 6 percent. That's after earnings. Company issuing an underwhelming sales outlook for the fourth quarter. Uh, China is a big story here. Uh, said it expects continued weakness in demand from China. China manufacturing PMIs you might have seen below 50. Worst month since June of 22 for Cat. Kevin Simpson uh, joins us now. So I appreciate you coming back on. So you bought more of the stock on Friday, right? Which you told us. You said if it goes down again, uh, you're going to buy more. So what's the update?
8: Yeah, the real thesis was to hold off and wait for earnings because we knew if they didn't blow it out of the water on their forecast, their margins, we'd see the stock come down. I, I think it's a little bit of an overreaction. We have a trade teed up, Scott, to, to add to the position today. I never try to pick a bottom, but... Our thesis is if we can let some of the sellers get out of the way, we will be adding to the position here. And it's a lot different when I look through the numbers than what we saw with UPS. Because if you remember last week, UPS margins were down from 13% to eight, and that caused us to remove the position. I mean, that's just too unhealthy for the short term. The numbers here certainly are down slightly. Yes, there's headwinds in China. The recession isn't great for, for an industrial for sure, but looking longer term, what we want to make sure we own are companies that are not dependent upon capital markets. This company can generate enough cash flow to get through an economic slowdown, no doubt. And we still think the, um, the, the infrastructure bill will play out in a multi-year phase for, for Caterpillar. So we won't have a full position at the end of the day. There's definitely headwinds, but I'm adding to it today and we will continue to do so on pullbacks.
2: I just don't want to gloss over. I mean, you say, you know, not dependent on capital markets, but is dependent on emerging markets. The China yeah. lack of recovery, lackluster, probably a better way to say it. That's a real problem, though, isn't it?
8: Yeah, but I think that that's been expected. That's kind of been priced into the stock. If we look back just the past two weeks, which is what got us interested in it. You know, there was a lot of pullbacks after that Chinese CPI, their backlogs are down. So if you look at headlines, you're gonna see a lot of reports saying that, they're, that, they're, that their backlog is down a lot. But I looked at it a little bit more closely. It's really down like 3%. It, the number is big, but you're talking about a company that has such magnitude. So they're talking about declines of $2 billion year over year, and that's a big number, but it's 2 billion on 60 to 65 billion. The other challenge is inflation, because some of these numbers, because the top and line for the quarter looked amazing, but some of that's price appreciation, and you can't raise prices to perpetuity. So mm-hmm. yes, this is a challenged environment over the short term. We're looking at it longer term, a forward PE of 12, and I think whatever we go through in the first part of the year, whether that's an economic contraction or even a recession, and no stock is recession proof for sure. These are these are the these are even further removed from that. But as we look out over the next two to three years, I think this is a good entry point. We're going to build out this position. And I I don't I'm not scared by the numbers that I'm looking
2: at here. I I turn to our expert, Steph. Mm -hmm. Um, You sold cat about 18 months ago, I think, Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, You do own deer, which is down as well, probably on this news. But what do you make of what Kev's doing with CAT and why you no longer own it and choose deer instead? Well,
4: I mean, it's interesting. It's one or the other. You don't need to own both in your portfolio. I happen to like the ag cycle. They're sold out in terms of equipment for 2023. Farmer income is actually off the charts. Inflation is coming down. Uh, So I prefer deer. It's also down more than CAT. So it's underperformed, but it's also a lot cheaper at six times EBITDA. CAT's at eight point, almost nine times EBITDA. But I, I agree in terms of the backlog being down $2.6 billion. It's a small number relative. But that, the biggest question out there right now that people have is, is it, is it weakening demand or is it just supply constraints that are easing? I actually think it's the latter. So I don't have a problem buying it here. I just prefer the cheaper version of deer.
1: So do you, Jimmy? Well, I, look, what I, this is a case for me, cat or deer, where I'm looking at companies that in the current earnings, they're out-earning. And their multiples are very cheap. I don't know if Kevin's still online with us, but I'd love to know what Cat's doing with this balance sheet. I'm not the expert on Cat. But again, all these cash flows are coming in. They've got to do something with it. Are they increasing their dividend? Are they paying down debt? Are they buying back shares? Kevin, are you still there? Yeah. And, and historically, this is a company that's increased its
8: dividend at a clip of about 5 to 8% per year for the past five years. They have been committed to paying down debt they're probably in less of a rush to do so because of where their financing is it's interesting because we do own john deere like like stephanie we had sold out of cat also maybe over a year year and a half ago it's just recently that when you're looking at these things coming down and it goes back jimmy to your thesis of looking at companies longer term that are undervalued trading below multiples and and the idea of us owning john deere and caterpillar at the same time uh, is it, something that we've never done before either. But you can't ignore the, the cash flow that comes in here. And I think right now for the foreseeable fa- future, for the near term, it's just cash on cash. And that's what we're looking at. That's what we're banking on. And I feel like this is a company that certainly has the ability to continue to improve for shareholders the value of the share price, the share buybacks, which which they have been committed to over the past few years, mm-hmm. and most importantly, the dividend growth that they've been behind in both instances with G- with John Deere and Caterpillar.
2: Kev, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for sharing the trade with us. That's Kevin Simpson. We'll see you soon. The headlines now Thanks. with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court.
9: Scott, the White House is proposing a new rule to protect retirement security. The proposal would require financial advisors to provide retirement guidance that is in the best interest of their saver rather than looking for the highest payday. Currently, some financial advisors are paid to recommend investment products that favor their financial interests at the expense of the saver. The rule would close these loopholes. Well, 40 countries are forming an alliance against paying ransom to cyber criminals. A White House official said the group is working toward eliminating the hackers funding. The International Counter, Counter Ransomware Initiative comes as cyber attacks ramp up around the world. Nearly half of the attacks happen in the U.S., with two high-profile companies, MGM Resorts and Clorox, hit last month. And just in time for Halloween, the Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project is looking to persuade the state to reckon with its early history. The group is asking for an apology and to clear the names of all those accused, indicted or arrested for witchcraft in the 1600s. Scott, back over to you.
2: All right, thank you, Courtney Reagan. Coming up, our calls of the day, including a big upgrade for a stock both Steph and Jim own. We will detail that when we come back with the Dow down just about nine points. s and is a fractional winner. We'll see you in two minutes. All right, calls of the day. Uh, We're going to start it off with Boeing today, North Coast. uh, Upgrades to buy from neutral, Target 217. That's 20%, Jim. 20% upside from here.
1: Well, I I find that kind of easy. And what I like about this analyst is that he's looking long-term and not short-term. I mean, short-term, everybody's fretting about this aft bulkhead issue with Spirit Aerosystems. Guess what, that's going to get worked out. That's what aerospace companies do. And there are very good engineers at Boeing. When you look past that, there's a ton of free cash flow coming. Look. In summary, on this, this has been one big step back over the last two months. The stock going from 240 to 180. I think it's way overdone. I think it sets up for two steps forward. I think 217 is too low for the target. I think it will exceed that in a number of months. Steph,
4: it's a duopoly with Airbus. They have a 5,700 backlog of aircraft. That's 10 years worth of visibility. I mean, so if you're thinking about the long game, that's what you have to think about. And as they deliver, produce, and deliver these aircraft free cash flow, certainly, Jim's point, will be increasing. They have a $10 billion free cash flow guide by 2025. And if they can deliver on increasing this production, they'll be easily surpassing that.
2: So the other call we wanted to do was Disney. Um, It gets reiterated outperform. The price target gets cut to 100 from 110. Now, Josh, I know you don't own it, but you do have strong opinions about it. I'm wondering if there's a point in this stock, it's about 80 bucks, where You take a look and you buy it. Is there anything I don't have strong opinions about? Well, this is one in particular. (laughs) uh, I walked into that. But this is one in particular that you've had some strong opinions about. But, you know, look, the stock is down from a 52-week high of 118 to 81. I really want to like Disney
3: enough to buy the stock because I really like when an amazing company is at a point in its its life cycle where everyone has given up on it. I think we're close. I just think I'm gonna get the stock low 70s. It's probably not that big of a deal if I miss it, honestly, because I don't even think the upside is so great. I just want the satisfaction of buying it when it's truly, truly, truly washed out. The problem with Disney is that the news keeps getting worse and the answers, you have melting iceberg businesses and the longer that goes on for, the eventual valuation, if you're gonna sell something, just goes lower and lower and lower. ESPN is going to be a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. I don't know what the strategic answer is, but when you look at this report, the analyst makes the case, ESPN could have negative operating income within just a few years. Why? Uh, NBA contract comes up. They're gonna have to pay an ungodly amount of money. Keep in mind who they'll be bidding against, like Apple, good luck, have fun with that. they have this, this lingering problem with some of these businesses like ABC and ESPN, and I don't think reorganizing it is the solution. So I'm watching it. I'm waiting. I think Nelson Pelt's coming back, obviously, is a positive development. I also don't think he has the answer uh, to what should be done. So it's a tough stock. I think there's a chance to make money here. I just think you wait.
2: Jimmy.
1: Strong opinions from a man known for strong opinions. No, well that was political. No, 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 it's all good, all good. That was well said. And and one of the phrasings that you use I'd like to key on, a melting iceberg, okay? that uh, ice cube rather Uh, that is what was said about the newspaper industry in the 1990s with the advent of the internet and guess what that was right back then however to the point that josh you're making and others have made about espn the demise of linear i don't think that disney is going down the path that the newspapers went down i think they will monetize uh, espn in the same way that they're moving to streaming right now. The Hulu uh, transaction is going to be done by the end of the year. Good. Let's get that done with, I don't know how they'll pay for A lot for of it, money. Josh. I know, so I'm going right there. Maybe they'll sell, sell the Indian streaming businesses. Maybe they'll sell LBC, ABC. Maybe they'll take out debt. I don't know. But the value on what they're buying, 9 to $12 billion is what we're talking about. It's worth a heck of a lot more than that. It is not... The linear business, it's wrong to call it a melting ice cube. It's being transformed into a different substance, namely streaming. And it will have value the way the newspapers could not create value when the Internet gutted them.
4: Yeah, but they have a lot of debt. They should be using their cash flow to to pay down that debt. That's what they really should be doing. They have
1: a lot of debt. You're absolutely right. That's why Steph gave up on it.
2: One of the reasons you gave up on it. I,
1: I understand. You are factually correct. I can't dispute that. I disagree that their right move is to pay that debt down. Now, maybe what they do is they sell. I don't know the Indian streaming business. I don't know cricket rights and what they should go for. But maybe they sell that and pay for the Hulu transaction. But sports like is still. I hear you, John. The I profits you. came from Bristol. <laughs> That's right. No, why Why does right. everyone
3: have so much trouble with this? No, no, I love no, the theme parks. Nobody has trouble with I love it. the nobody box office. Nobody has trouble
1: with it. What I'm saying to you, and I get your point, it's very well made. Okay, my point is that the Well, you do dismiss his point, though. (laughs) I'm not dismissing it. I'm not dismissing it. I'm disagreeing with it. That's a big difference, okay? What you're saying is the ice is going to melt you. Streaming profits from Hulu will never offset.
3: This is a company that had a golden goose. They had 100 million cable subscribers paying $10 a month. To ESPN, whether they watched one minute of sports or Do zero minutes, ESPN or ESPN t- let them a- finish.
2: Let them finish. <laughs> let him
3: finish, please. It please. was it it's was a
2: hundred
3: million cable subs. It's seventy. It's going to fifty. Everybody knows it. They're going to launch their own over the top uh, streaming ESPN standalone thing. I wish them well. I don't know where the pricing will be. I don't know how many subs there will be for that app. But once they shoot that shot. Everyone on Wall Street collectively is going to go,
1: okay, now what? I don't know the
3: answer. It's and, that's and, what makes Josh, it
1: so tough. Josh, I don't know the answer either, but what I am saying, and I don't know if you get into the low 70s or not, I think you're gonna get into it. You're just talking about it enough, but what I am saying is this idea that ESPN is a zero. That the analyst I didn't said no, zero. No, 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 no okay. relax, relax. Right. That the analyst said that there might be negative operating income from ESPN. I think that's too draconian. I think that's the analyst community doing what the analyst community does, following a trend. And, not, and and saying this is going to be like Gannett in 1995. I just disagree with well, that. Will the price they pay for
3: sports rights go up or down within the next three oh, years?
1: Let's, I, let's not do the 20 questions. I'm going to agree with
3: what you're well, saying. No, here. no, that's the question. Okay, so declining subs, higher price for sports. That's... Double negative. Now you're purposely. Now you're purposely. Why are you you even even thinking about it? You know what I'm short Are you kidding me? All right, I'm done with this guy. Up next, Michael Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime, we'll be right back. Thank goodness.
2: (laughs) All right. Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, uh, is here. You know, the conversation we had at the top of the show with Dubrovko and, you know, the counter view to some of the people who are more bullish just to me is the quintessential argument, Mike, of where the puck is today versus where some see it going in the future. And it's going to take a minute, so to speak, for us to find the answer to that. And in the meantime, we're going to be in this spin. Yes,
11: no doubt about it. So uh, you have the premise where everybody has been geared for a year and a half to say, late cycle, when's the turn? When does it finally fall off the cliff? Um, and now the market is starting to, if anything, uh, look more clearly at the idea that we can't really see uh, a reacceleration from here, even though it's in, the, it's in the macro data. So I do think, agree, that's the uh, that's where the, uh, the front lines of the debate lies. Uh, stuff that's cyclical looks cheap if the earnings are coming through, really cheap. If they're not coming through, it's a disaster. I would have told you two weeks ago. Whirlpool, dirt cheap. VF Corp. Look at that, low expectations. And then the numbers get cut, and they go down. And so it's tough to generalize around whether, in fact, parts of the market have discounted earnings erosion. But um, I do think it's uh, it, there's a lot of opportunity, and the market is attempting in these quiet times for the bond market to differentiate. You know, outside of Nvidia, semis are up today. I mean, I know that's, you know, a big exception. Um, and you're seeing the banks outperform tech in the last five days. So the laggards are trying to stabilize going into the Fed. We're just going to idle into the Fed. But I think what you want to do is, is see if the market can get into a neutral spot. We might not
2: idle out of the Fed, um, depending yeah. on what, you know, Jay Powell says more than what they do, yep. clearly. And Trading a race has been tough
11: gone. Tuesday to Friday, <laughs> most weeks in the last four. So yeah. keep
2: that in mind. I'll see you in a couple hours on Closing Bell. It's Mike Santoli coming up. A retail wreck. The stock's down big after the company pulled guidance. Committee member Jenny Harrington owns it. She's going to phone in with a trade update. We'll tell you about it next. We are back. I want to show you shares of VF Corp. There they are, down near 13% today. The company withdrawing next year's guidance. They're going to do a $300 million restructuring. Jenny Harrington joins us now to discuss, because she owns the stock. Wow. We are going to show a five-year chart, Jenny, because it's down 80% in five years. What do you do today with this?
0: Well. Let's remember, as we look at it over five years, we only added this a couple months ago. And we added it around $19, with the idea being that it was down so significantly. And the reason it was down so significantly was because earnings had already come in. They'd already come in from their pandemic high. The stock had gotten trashed. So where you go today is you kind of go through, you know, the stages of grief. First, you want to throw up in the trash. You want to quit your job. You know, then you get into self-soothing. Look at the rest of the portfolio. See what you've actually done right. Settle yourself down. And then you get serious and look at the investment thesis, which for me is always 2 prong, because it's an investment income-oriented strategy. So, first, I look at the income side of the investment thesis. That's ruined. They cut their dividend by 70%. Then I look at the capital appreciation side of the investment thesis, and that's mostly intact. It wasn't really that terrible a quarter. It was just the guidance and the p- and the dividend where we had a problem. So earnings were fine. They came in at 63 cents. That's where they were expected. Revenues were 3 billion. And I look at that and I say, "Okay, even if earnings get hit another 30% from here." So they by the way, they were supposed to be 210 for this year for next year. Let's say they come in at a buck 50. They come in at a buck 50, which is terrible, right? The stock's still trading at 10 times. The original investment thesis was predicated on a turnaround at Vans. That's still totally intact. And what they're doing now is saying, "Hey, we're going to take money from the dividend, and we're going to aggress. We're going to aggressively attack this turnaround of- at Vans
11: the, p- p- the problem.
0: and and with more money p- than we have expected." I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to
2: cut you off because I'm running yeah. out of time. The oh, problem sorry. with all of this is that it's not going to happen. Now, this is Kramer talking th- this morning. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight, and it's going to be a long-term thing. So you know. This sounds to me like an original thesis of what you investment thesis that you thought you had uh, has quickly fallen apart
0: not really I think in some ways it's sped up and that's unfortunate for me because they took the dividend income away like that part fell apart but what they're doing with that money is they're trying to turn around Vans
2: faster right but it's not gonna happen but it's not gonna happen faster that, that's the never whole point it's happen. not gonna, it happen never gonna happen
0: overnight anyway you know I'm always super long term so you have a new CEO Bracken Daryl he's clearly kitchen sinking it he's resetting the base to give him upside himself upside from yeah. here um, I think it's gonna happen faster but it stinks for right now and it's really disappointing
2: yeah I'm so Sorry, i got to cut you short, Jenny. We'll talk about it more when I see you in person. But thanks for calling in. Uh, tough stock to look at, and I know you're feeling the pain on that, but I appreciate your point of view, and I know our viewers do, too. Final trades are next. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern, final hour of trade. Liz Young, Greg Brandt, Stacey Rascon ahead of Josh's AMD. Stop that. Take it right up to the close <laughs> and those earnings, which he is going to be watching closer than ever. All right, final trades. Josh Brown, kick us off. Uh,
3: the one that got away. Take a look at Arista Network's A-Net. What a report. This is another AI play. I sold it at 185 so you're free to watch this thing go right to 250 without me. <laughs> All right, Steph.
4: GE Healthcare, really good quarter, actually, and they saw operating margins expand, which is exactly what we wanted to see. Stock's up 4%, but down 27% from its highs. I think it's a buy. All right.
2: Why we got Cleveland Cliffs up there, Farmer Jim?
1: Because they raised prices third time in a month that they've raised prices. You got prices going up. Volumes are going up with the end of the UAW strike. Costs are going down. What's not to like?
2: All right. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching. I'll see you on the Bell Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC.